this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Oh boy, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. We're back for another edition of Book Nerd Movie Hour, or two hours, or three hours. I don't know how long we're going to go. Well, I'm here for, you know, the life sentence. On of... the formidable, estimable, durable, the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, direct, written and directed by Frank Darabont, based on a Stephen King novella, short novel, um, that appeared first in different seasons in, I think, 1982 is when that first came out, which also produced the short story that became Stand By Me, Stand By Me, which became Rob Reiner's mm-hmm. big hit, which launched his career. Rob Reiner named his production company Castle Rock Entertainment in homage to Stephen King, since Stephen King's fictional town is Castle Rock, Maine. So we're a whole lot came out of this yeah. very and, uh, interesting novella collection. In and also the, the short story that the Apt Pupil yes. movie was adapted from as well. There's a lot going on in this book, and none of them are horror stories, really. None of them are horror stories, which if you needed any additional testimony to, to King's supreme storytelling acumen, it's, it's, it's hard to look past... Stand by Me, the movie Stand by Me, and the movie Shawshank, uh, the Shawshank Redemption became because they are very similar to the novellas out of which they come. Mm-hmm. I think in both cases they're better, but only because I think they're richer. They only only because they have more time with characters and settings and stories. Um, and a lot of what you love about both of those movies is there in in the novellas themselves. Yeah. I'm just happy we're doing a bonus episode about a thing we both really liked this time. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, the book nerd movie cloud, uh, hour ones. <laughs> yeah, these have been. We're fun. picking them because we like them. Right. I guess at some point we might we might do it to throw spit wads, but it doesn't seem like we're going to do that. So the Shawshank Redemption. We're, let's talk about the book first. I mean, everyone knows this because of the movie, right? There, right. There's very few people that are like, oh yeah, this is that novella, right? Right. Um, because it's also the the novella has a different title called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Weirdly, my paperback edition that I bought has a super title. I don't even know how to describe it called Hope Springs Eternal. Yeah. Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank mm-hmm. Redemption. I've never seen something like that. Before. Yeah. So the, I, I think we must have gotten the same paperback edition yeah. of this. This was my first time reading the story. Was it yours or had you read it yes, before? My it was first, your first time. time. Okay. First time. Yeah. And like the t- the title of the book is different seasons and each section of the book is titled after a season. So there's mm-hmm. Hope Springs Eternal and then the story inside that is Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And there's like after that is a, an introduction with a summer or a section with a summer title and that story then is the apt pupil that it, it goes on. So there's like the seasonal setup mm-hmm. and then the actual story title. I don't really understand it, but Okay. Maybe it's just a way he had some short novellas to put together, and this is a way of like c- providing some connected some tissue because they of, don't matter. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. It does matter. nothing. The seasonal um, grouping or uh, assignation doesn't seem to matter at all. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of Just Some Stupid Love Story. 
So in Just Some Stupid Love Story by Caitlin Doyle, Molly and Seth were best friends turned lovers until Molly ghosted Seth on the eve of their high school graduation, which is very trifling, I might add. So now they've reunited again at their high school reunion 15 years later, and they make a bet. Whoever can predict the fate of five couples before the next reunion must declare that the other is right about true love. But what is the catch, you might ask? Well, the catch is that the fifth couple is them. Dun, dun, dun. So this is a callback to the best 90s and early 2000s rom-coms. If you like When Harry Met Sally or How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, this will be right up your alley. This is also perfect for fans of romance readers of Emily Henry, Catherine Center, and others like that. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of Just Some Stupid Love Story, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the Credit Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. But let's talk about the novella reading experience. Impossible now um, to read it without seeing the characters, Mm -hmm. hearing Morgan Freeman's singular narration in the Shawshank Redemption. Is there anything, I, I guess, why don't you go first to evaluate your experience of reading the novella, having probably like me seen the Shawshank Redemption on a cable 10,000 times. Yeah, you know, I don't remember the last time that I watched the movie from start to finish because it is one of those cable rewatchables mm-hmm. for me that, you know, you pick up at any time and watch it for an hour, watch it through to the end. Um, I certainly heard Red's voice. So there's the two main characters, Red, who is played by Morgan Freeman, um, and then Andy Dufresne, played by Tim Robbins in the film. And Red narrates the story for us. I, I just loved the voice all mm. the way through. Um, and I was so pleased then watching the film afterwards of how much of the language in the movie comes directly from the text. Yeah. But from the very beginning of like, I'm the guy who can get it for you. And Red's telling us about not just what his role in the prison is and that he's kind of the fixer, procurer mm-hmm. of things. Um, but also we know right up front that like prison security isn't totally tight because you can get these things in and out and that everyone knows this and is part of the system that you have to like let guys have a little something or everyone will go nuts. Um, I loved the like the detailed characterization and seeing Andy Dufresne through Red's eyes in the text. Um, Little like just these great details that we don't quite get in the Mm -hmm. in the movie of like he always looked as if he should have been wearing a tie. Um, There was an element of fantasy to him, a sense almost of myth magic. Um, And then later on, uh, Red talks about how Andy has a sense of his own worth, or maybe it was only a sense of freedom. It was a kind of inner light he carried around with him. Mm. Um, Just 
the depth and like like emotional depth, not just descriptive depth of um, of how we see these characters and of how Stephen King understood them through Red's eyes was I just loved it so much and it's funny like the book I think was is funnier than the movie well there's something about seeing the violence in the movie is ratcheted up and Mm -hmm. we'll talk about some and it's also different to see it it just is this is a movie book thing I think we're going to come back to around and around it's different to read about violence than to see violence yeah yes and like the violence um on the page also did surprise me. And I think I texted you at one point yeah. about like, who boy, there's a lot more like prison rape on the page um, than I was expecting or than I was ready for. I mm-hmm. was really surprised given like that the book was written in the eighties and we talk about rape really differently now um, of, of the level of sensitivity that yes. was there that like Stephen King understood that when he wrote this, that rape is about a power dynamic, yep. um, that it is a thing that occurs in prison and that it occurs in the context of power dynamics and cruelty. Um, he's not joking about it. Like it's not a wink, wink thing nope. about, you know, like it's handled, I think with a lot of sensitivity, some of the descriptions of it, don't age well um, for 2019. But that that was just, it was a tough read um, watching it. Also watching the violence in general. Yeah, we'll get to that was, was tough. Um, but there was much more humor on the page than I expected. And like one of the critical differences between the stories is um, we know in the book that Dufresne has come into prison and brought $500 with him. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Red uh, is talking about um, how did he manage to do that? And I I just thought the line was great where he says, you know, when you're coming into prison and you're getting the full body search, one of the bellhops is obliged to bend you over and take a look, take a look up your works. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of works. <laughs> the euphemis- Red's euphemistic talking is good because it's there. And also when talking about the sexual violence, mm-hmm. it's there talking about um, Brooks, own plight. It's, you know what he's saying without being overt. And I think that's one of the real strengths of the book and the movie. Little, I mean, one of the things the the movie, because it's just much more popular, has been criticized for is the sentimentality. We'll get there at the end. Mm-hmm. But the book is less overt about the sentimentality. Spoilers. I should, we should say we're going to spoil oh, everything. Yeah. But when the, the, the pullback on um, the beach in Mexico where Red and Andy meet is meaningfully not in the book. Right. Um, and King is a little more, there's more distance between us and Andy in the book and between Red and Andy in the book because the book is clearly a narrative that Red is writing while he's in prison then gets paroled in the middle of the writing of mm-hmm. it and his story changes in the middle of it. Like, I'm going to do this and now I'm, I guess I'm going to go see Andy now and I hope it ends with, I hope the ocean's as blue as it's been in my imagination, in my dreams. I hope and that's where it ends, we don't see it. And it's part of the pleasure of the novella is watching Red try to figure out Andy, trying to describe yeah. Yeah. Andy. And those places, those passages you were talking about, I, I totally agree, are, are are marvelous. And some of it is it's Red's own interest and affection for Andy really shines through there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like there was even a, a part at the end where he's describing Andy talking about like all the things Andy must have done to succeed in doing what he did. Yeah. I mean, he says he was a methodical cuss. And <clears throat> I wrote in the margin of my paperback like what a great I want someone to describe me that way someday like what a great yeah compliment but that these characters truly I think see each other red like mm-hmm. really sees 
Andy Dufresne and you that comes across on the page. There's just a lot more nuance, I thought, in the writing um, than we get on film. The the movie, I love this movie, but I think I liked the book better. Wow, that's a hot take, Rebecca. I know. I know. Um, I know it was. We can get there a little bit more later mm-hmm. or a lot more. Um, but that it's the movie leaves us hanging on and and they talk about hope, but they have these sort of deeper discussions about it. And I think the, um, the film like is a little more overt or maybe a lot more overt. It's a lot. It's a long movie. It's two hours and 20 minutes. It's one of the few movies I can think of where it's took, would take me longer to read the source material than to watch the movie. And there's some scenes I think that come in the movie. I don't think there's a bad scene in this movie. I'll say that. I Mm -hmm. think there are some scenes that I wouldn't be sad if they were gone and actually change the, I, I don't know. We'll get we'll get to the ending, but I think would get, come closer to the more subtle of the book. I, I agree. I think I agree with you um, there. Um, yeah, that that it's a text. I think you're a thousand percent right that the position King gives Red in the prison as the guy who can get you things does so much heavy lifting for the book and for the movie because. Again, it gives us this wonderful, you know, when he, Andy came to me and asked for Rita Hayworth, I said, no problem. Mm-hmm. And the first time you see that, it's hard to remember my first encounter with this because it's like it, the always already of my movie going watch is like uh, life mm-hmm. is the Shawshank Redemption. But even watching it now, you're like, oh, they know they're not actually talking about Rita Hayworth, but you don't know. Right. And they get to fill in the world building about how the prison works. Red is the master of his domain within the prison he he has the best connection he does you never see red get disciplined in the movie Mm -hmm. it does happen in the book he spends some time in the whole easiest time i ever did um when he's laughing about something later but that doesn't appear in in the movie he is he is playing it exactly like he's supposed to as someone's life sentence he's got connections he greases the skids with the guards with the wardens he's got friends he did his time with the sisters. Um, he says, you know, I wish I could, in the book he says, I wish I could say, I'm not yeah. speaking from experience about having been um, assaulted, but I'm not. But he got through it. He's putting in his time. He's saying exactly what he thinks he's supposed to say in the parole board. And he's playing out the string. He's a model prisoner, even in the way in, in the way that the, word, the, the prison itself is okay with. They don't mind he's breaking the rules because he's breaking the rule within the confines of what they can accept. Whereas Andy is a sort of wild card both for Red and for the Joker, um, not the Joker, um, the, 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 I'm thinking wild card in my head, the Joker mm. is the wild card, of uh, the warden. Mm-hmm. You know, we're okay with Red. That kind of disobedience we can handle, we can understand, we can tolerate. But Andy's sensibility is one we can't, and Red trying to scan and read Andy's difference is such an important part of really the first half of the movie and the book. Yeah, and then they sort of hang a lantern on it in a conversation, in that first conversation where Andy tells Red about um, Zewatanejo yeah. and that he has this dream of you know, getting out and going and that Red talks about uh, understanding himself to be institutionalized mm-hmm. and so used to living on the inside with the structures and the rules of prison that he wouldn't know how to be free out in the world and there's that fundamental difference between them of as red puts it that andy like holds on to a sense of freedom and like you know has this kind of inner light that he carries around and understands himself to really have agency um, in a way that allows him to do what he does in Mm -hmm. the story where red 
I think, understands himself as institutionalized and he's breaking rules, but he's like breaking the rules, as you said, that he's allowed to break in the way that he's allowed to break them and just kind of getting by. Like he has sacrificed the understanding of himself as free um, in service of survival. Right. Survival is the right word. And I don't think it's a a word weirdly or maybe me. It's loudly quiet that Mm -hmm. they don't use the word survival because, you know, probably the key quote from the book and the movie is get busy living or get busy dying. And survival is the middle way, right? Right. It's not living or dying. It's this middle term. And Andy is suggesting if you're not going to try to live, which is to do something more than survive, why even play out the string? You're in prison. Is it worth surviving here? Isn't it worth taking a chance? Isn't it worth some other kind of thing? Because Red's initial reaction to the Zewataneo talk is hope is a dangerous thing, Mm -hmm. which it is if if your um, goal is merely to survive. Right. right. Hope is dangerous if, if a good outcome for you is survival. If it's something more than that, you have to have hope. You have to you don't only have to hope, but you have to do something about it and and wager your body, wager your mm-hmm. life in this co- in the context. Right. And that's a real like, what are you going to regret more kind of proposition? Right. And I think for Andy, it's hope is dangerous, but it's not as dangerous as getting stuck here. Yes. Um, right. Getting busy dying. And for Red the the hope is dangerous because what if I try and fail and then it's even worse. My situation right. is even worse. Like I've got a decent thing going. I can break the rules in this way. I'm a model prisoner. Maybe someday when I say the right words at the parole board, I'll get paroled. But he doesn't really want to get paroled mm-hmm. because he understands himself to be like a man on the inside. Um, that his situation would certainly be worse if he attempted it and failed. Um, And Andy's willing to accept that cost in a way that makes him unique in their relationship, but really unique probably in the the world, certainly in the world of the story. It got me thinking about this, what we just talked about, and I had this question in my mind as I was thinking about doing this episode. Let me pose this question to you. The title of the book and movie includes the phrase Shawshank Redemption. Mm -hmm. Who is being redeemed here? Hmm... Well, it's not Shawshank itself. No, it's not Shawshank. (laughs) Yeah, I think the redemption word is really interesting. I think Mm -hmm. it's... I think it's more clear in the book that this is Red's story. Yeah, yeah. I do think that it's Red's redemption. Like, Andy is innocent. Mm-hmm. And we know that he's innocent through basically through the whole thing. Um, he gets confirmation, like everyone around him gets confirmation of his innocence. And so there's not a sin for him to be redeemed. But in a way, he takes the steps that allow Red um, yeah. his own, right, his own redemption, his own freedom. Like he gets Red free in a way that Red was never going to get himself free. Even um, if Red never got out of prison, Andy provided something for him. Yeah, and we uh, see, and when we see Red leave prison, even before he leaves prison, he talks about how guys get out and then they commit some small crime so that they can get sent mm. back to lockup um, because they're that's the only life that they know. Um, and in, and we see him have that experience that when he gets paroled, he thinks about this. Um, it's more overt in the movie that he's thinking about doing something so he can get sent back to prison. He he, I think he would have just gone down that path, yeah. um, gotten paroled and then gotten himself back in, if not for the example, the hope that Andy lights inside him. It's functionally like if Andy is carrying the inner light, he's able to fire that up in red in a way that red wouldn't have otherwise had. Yeah, interestingly, and, and I'm now going to conflate or confuse the <laughs> book and the movie, so I apologize. But I, I think it's in the in the novella too, where you know, Red's nadir is he's after he's kind of he's he's following in Brooks's footsteps in the halfway house. He's living in the same place, doing the same job, having the same feelings, 
And he's about to do the thing that Brooks did, which mm-hmm. is hang himself. Yeah. And he said, you know, I would have gotten out. I would have ended already, except I made a promise to a friend. Mm-hmm. And it's not even the hope that he could, I don't know, feel better, but that his connection, his ethical connection as Andy is so strong that he at least wants to have tried to fulfill the promise. And when Red talks about being rehabilitated when he tries to get parole, he's saying the wrong things. The movie and book are telling us the rehabilitation here is that he's forged connection to other people. He Mm -hmm. cares about someone other than himself, that that 20-year-old punk who killed someone, we gas in the middle of a robbery in the movie, in the book. In the book, Red's crime is much less forgivable, which Mm -hmm. we can talk about in a minute, but that he didn't care enough about other people as a young man, but forging a friendship with Andy was enough to get him, to pull him back from the brink, to try this one last thing, and to get him on a path where he might be able to hope. It wasn't that he could do it, but he thought it was worth trying. It was worth trying to fulfill the promise. Yeah, there's It's worth a, trying to fulfill um, that connection and, and play it out. Yeah, there's a real sense of just like the power of humanity and connection, yeah. both in the book and the movie. And that's... I think very difficult to do in fiction in a way that doesn't come across as too sentimental. It worked, it worked really well for me in both, but especially I found in the book Um, and that it's especially difficult and uncommon in stories about people who have done bad things like Mm -hmm. that. Stephen King is telling the story set inside a prison is I think certainly no accident. um, And that we're asked and invited into looking at the humanity of these characters and understanding them to be not just ordinary people who have been in situations where they did bad things, but extraordinary in some Mm. ways. They're sort of like the extraordinariness of ordinariness. Mm. Um, But it's this connection between the two of them that drives read um and probably in some unspoken ways like we never got the flipped version of this we're never going to get the andy dufresne narrative um you know narrative right. switch but i think we're also given to understand that this drives andy dufresne in some way as well like he could have just planned to get out of prison by himself but he shares all of this with red for a reason <laughs> this episode is sponsored by lavender con and little district books LavenderCon, which is just the best name for a book festival, is a new book festival in Washington, D.C. It's presented by Little District Books, which is Washington, D.C.'s all-queer bookstore, both of whom are dedicated to celebrating LGBTQIA plus authors and stories. The festival will feature over 80 authors, including Terry J. Benton Walker, the author of the Blood Debts duology, famed audiobook narrator Natalie Nottis with her debut romance novel called Gay the Prey Away, and Rashid Newson, author of My Government Means to Kill Me. And as I am looking at the website right now, breaking news, I saw a familiar face, and that is Book Riot senior contributor Susie Dumont. I'm so excited to see her name on this list, author of Queerly Beloved and Looking for a Sign. So you have so many great authors to discover at the festival. LavenderCon will feature 20 plus panels with topics for middle grade, young adult, and adult readers discussing romance, fantasy, horror, writing craft, and more. There will be a queer artist market, so you can go nab all of the great art and stickers and pins and handmade goods. The festival is happening June 29th and 30th in Washington, D.C., and you can either grab Saturday, Sunday, or two-day VIP tickets, which come with a few extra perks. Thank you once again to LavenderCon and Little District Books for sponsoring today's show. We hope you make your way over to the festival. Today's episode is brought to you by Four Eads and a Funeral by Farida Abike Iemide and Adiba Jai Gadar. And let me just say... 
These two authors are powerhouse YA authors. They write bangers. They write fire novels that slap. Just letting y'all know that off rip. So ex-best friends Tiwa and Saeed must work together to save their Islamic center from demolition. Tiwa doesn't understand what made Saeed start ignoring her, but it's probably that fancy boarding school of his. Anyway, he's unexpectedly staying at home through the summer and she's determined to take a page from him and pretend he doesn't exist. So there's that. But when the Islamic Center accidentally catches fire, it turns out the mayor plans to demolish the center entirely. Shady, shady boots. So will all their efforts be enough to save the Islamic Center, save Saeed, and maybe even save their relationship? Listen, time will tell. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Four Eads and a Funeral by Farida Abike Iyamide and Adiba Jagadar for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, that question um, bothered me is too strong, but entered my mind is if Red isn't there, does Andy's story change? It's obvious you're totally, I mean, I totally agree with you that if Andy's there, Red's, Red hangs himself in the halfway house. I don't think there's any question mm-hmm. about that. I think both texts are broadcasting that loud yeah. and clear. And what Andy gets from Red is more than transactional, I think, more than just getting the rock hammer and the rock mm-hmm. cloth and so on and so forth. I don't, but I, it's not clear. And in the in the book, it actually makes a little more sense because you have so much more distance from Andy. Because like, Andy's almost a mythical character to Red because he's piecing together from other sources things about Andy. There's things he doesn't know about hand, how Andy did something. In the movie, since we know he ends up with Andy at the end, his gaps in knowledge wouldn't make as much sense. We don't get any of that. Mm-hmm. Well, I heard from sources that Andy did X, Y, or Z. Red is very much speaking there from firsthand experience. But what what did Andy get from Red that was beyond Red's transactional way of understanding the world? Because Red did obey the law, and that's how he thought of his connections with other people as being tracked. It's this plus 10%. It's this or this. You give me this, and I'm making the bets. And it's fair, but is it ethical? It's it's fair, and there are rules, but is he really connecting with anybody? And right. it's when he gives Andy the poster for free after his time in the hole. That's the, I think mm-hmm. it's the first time Red breaks out of his transactional worldview that he's built for himself in Shawshank. And that's important for him. When does Andy change? It's a little less clear to me. I don't know that Andy changes. Like, mm-hmm. I think... He gets a break. He gets a break on that rooftop because Red says, like, right. you know, if it had gone on like that, I don't think he would right. make it because he's basically getting serially raped <laughs> by the sisters. Yeah, he gets a break, but I don't think he changes. Like, I we're kind of... I read it as like that Red sees him for the entirety of their relationship or like from the first day that they know each other right on through to the end mm-hmm. as this like almost mythical, inspiring, hard to understand guy. And and Red says something in the book about like that Andy is the most like self-possessed person that he right. keeps to himself that like you could know him for a really long time and not know much about him and only like get little bits and pieces out. And I think Andy is pretty con- like I think Andy's character is pretty consistent through the whole story that he's the vehicle of Red's change and that he it, he's there to be seen like that mm-hmm. it's in see it's the act of seeing Andy like on a human level that changes Red um, and Andy's just there to mo- like kind of exists on the page to mobilize that he's an amazing character but like this is a story about Red. Yeah. Well, you know, now that I think about it, try this one on for size. So there's a great moment where Andy talks about, you know, he's doing the Zoatanea and he talks about Mm -hmm. how, you know, 
Red finally knows that he's innocent. And Andy says, you know, it's bad luck. Whatever sins I had, I've paid for them. And he says his sin is really like, I killed her. Red doesn't agree with that. But Andy seems to say there was, I made a mistake in my relationship with my wife. Mm. I, I loved her. Boy, I loved her. I just didn't know how to show it. I drove her into Quentin's arms. And Andy, until the rooftop scene, he's trying to live his life in his own bubble until yeah. the rooftop scene. And so his conversion really seems to happen when he gets this chance to um, basically get some leverage over the guards and the system at Shawshank. And his maneuver is not to do something for himself, it's to get beers for his fellow inmates, right? Right. He doesn't drink the beer, he gets it for them, and he takes pleasure from that and then becomes part of that coterie. So I, I think a plain text reading is that because Andy has this new power in the in the prison system, that's what changed it for him. But I really think him coming out of a shell and willing to be a part of that little social group and be actually be Red's friend, um, that was the thing that mm-hmm. saved him mm-hmm. rather than just the the being able to be doing taxes. And if that's the case, then Red's and Andy's story are very similar. It's like, and for a story about male friendship, which this story very much is probably the, the greatest movie ever about platonic male friendship, both men have the same problem, which is they don't know how to connect to other people, which... As a Midwestern Protestant man, I have to say, (laughs) it's very, very close to home for this is a stereotypically, let me say, man's problem of not knowing how to connect with other people, not opening yourself, not being emotionally vulnerable, and getting yourself in it and acting out in a variety of different ways. Mm -hmm. We see men of all stripes acting out because they don't know how to connect with other people here. Yeah, I can get on board with that reading. That rooftop moment is pivotal in the stories the way that it plays out in the book and the movie that are different I do think is meaningful in the Mm. like in in both cases Andy gets in good with the warden and the guard and he's and that's how he accrues power Um, but in the book it works against him like he's accrued that power and then he and then he finds out that another prisoner knows the name of the guy who actually did kill his wife and he goes and tries to get actions taken for that but of course the warden's not going to let him go because he's super useful Mm -hmm. and he has to keep working against it and ultimately he escapes and then in the movie we find out that like as he's gaining his power with the warden and the guards, he's embezzling their money for himself, for his alias, so that when he escapes, he'll have their money. Um, And Mm. I did think that 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 long con in the movie is a lot more satisfying than the version in the book. The version in the book is that he had time between the trial and having to go to prison to put money away or like to protect the money that he had already saved. And so he's got like $37,000 somewhere under someone else's name and all the ID and stuff waiting so that if he escapes, he can go collect the money he put aside for himself. Like all the pieces are much more connected in the book that like, there's kind of no, there's no way that the Andy of the movie is getting to Zawatanejo if he doesn't do this with the guards and the wardens and take like siphon off their money for himself and then escape and then have that money yeah. um, to get there. Yeah, that's an important difference. I mean, the the movie for as long as it is um, adds some, but also condenses some. And I think the place it condenses, like there's multiple wardens in the novella and they, yeah. they coalesce in the form of Norton, which I think is, makes all the sense. And totally. what a wonderful villain. I mean, one of the great movie villains of all time, Warden Norton, mm-hmm. uh, Warden Norton. Um, and then, the hardest, uh, the hardest screw to ever walk a turn at Shawshank. Mm-hmm. Um, the prison guard, also a wonderful character in that he is a manifestation, an embodiment of brute force 
being deployed whenever it's expedient. He's not about justice. He's not even about evil. It's about expedience. When it's Andy using him or being used on his behalf to beat the hell out of Boggs, mm-hmm. it's the guard. When the when Norton is using him to shoot Tommy in the movie, it's the guard. He's just the application of force that's totally... He's not immoral. He's amoral, right? He's being used mm-hmm. as just a tool in any particular situation. The guards are a little bit condensed, which is great. We get a lot more Brooks... Tommy's story is clarified, or no, it's not clarified. It's just altered radically. Mm-hmm. I would say, yeah. In the book, I'm not sure. In the in the book, it's a tough beat for for Andy with Tommy. In mm-hmm. the book, um, basically, the warden strikes a deal. We're led to understand where Tommy can do less time in a better facility by shutting the hell up. Right. Yep. He turns on Andy. He he turns him in, and in the movie, he's murdered. Um, I'm not sure. I think the movie one is more satisfying. I think the book one is probably better for yeah. the movie for the, for the story as a whole. I, I think. that complexity is just better. I yeah, think. I agree with that. I think some of the violence and the villains are a little cartoonish, or they like yes. walk up yep. to the edge of cartoonish in the movie in a way that I found like a little bit distracting and maybe because it's just subtler on the page and I had mm-hmm. something to compare it to this time around because Norton is like you're right one of the great movie villains but also played at like 11 the whole time yes um, and the guard is Hadley is played at 11 the whole time and it just when they killed Tommy my notes actually just say they kill Tommy WTF like <laughs> I didn't remember that and like now that I know what happens to him in the book is like that was like why did we also need this it just felt like a it felt like a lot to me i did not appreciate that there's not a lot of complexity in character who are not prisoners in the book i think that's fair Mm -hmm. right i mean that's in both cases tommy's the only one that's a little more gray i mean for a book and a movie that are basically rock toned Mm -hmm. uh, in both style and, and visual um portrayal interesting that the the gray is really the prisoners and how they're dealing and we don't in the book the other thing the movie does better and some of it's because faces are easier to remember the names like the other prisoners just come so much more alive yeah in the movie because you get lose track of names and the this this little coterie of um other prisoners that's such an important part of the rewatchability of the movie like william uh, sadler who is play, probably the the next most biggest part after andy um and red is wonderful and forgettable in the book. I can't even remember which, you know, prisoner is that supposed mm-hmm. to be He's an amalgam of several different ones. Okay, we're way into talking about the book. We're we're <laughs> we're, we're going back and forth. We need to get into cast and some other movie stuff. What else anything else within the book that we want to say at this point? Do we want to talk about Red's crime in the book at all? So the big changes, Tommy, the end and Red's crime. Are those the three big things that are different? Is there anything else you want to add to that? Well, Red's a white Irish guy in the book. Um, yes, and... <laughs> but weirdly doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, it doesn't no, really matter. It doesn't really matter, except there's like a noticeable lack of other black people in prison in the movie. Um, well, which... at least there's some. In the book, there's none. Like yeah, we get, true. We get the... Um, Morgan Freeman's son is apparently one of the prisoners yelling fresh fish at one point. <laughs> we get one of the nurses is is black, but... You're right. Noticeable lack of black people, but there's zero black people in the book as far as we're told. Played for a laugh. You know, why they call you red? Maybe because I'm Irish. Mm -hmm. It's a visual gag, right? Yeah, it is a good, and that's, it's a good moment in the Mm. movie when that happens. It's a good, funny beat. There is a line that Red has early in the book where he's talking about, like, 
functionally prisoners as slaves and the way that like the dehumanizing way that guards view and treat prisoners um and he says like in prison everyone is an n-word and it's like (laughs) oof stephen king 1982 like that was my we have like later in our format but the uh joyce carol Oates oh no award and that was my moment of like ooh, a white character saying this and they like that line is noticeably not in the movie yeah right um and it could have been delivered by the actor who Yes. Ended up playing the character if they had wanted to leave it in. I think it's a good choice to take it out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an unnecessary, uh, it's an unnecessary use of that word. I think in the in what in the point King is trying to make in the book anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've hit the main the main differences. Um, I guess it the the ending. Well, let's actually start our discussion with the movie in its production phase. So we talked about on the main podcast a long time ago this thing Stephen King does where he lets aspiring filmmakers option short stories for a dollar. And Frank Darabont did that with one of a different Stephen King short story, made a movie out of it that kind of helped him get his career going. You know, he he established a correspondence with King. And when he had a little juice after, I guess he wrote the screenplay for Nightmare on Elm Street 3 was Frank Darabont's. He didn't make his bones there, but he got enough juice where he could make something else. He got the rights to Shawshank, the, the short story for $1,000. That's what he paid Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Stephen King apparently never has cashed the check, uh, which is an interesting little side nugget. Oh, I didn't catch that in my yeah. research. That's great. Never has cashed the check. Says, if I ever need it, I'll, I'll come to Frank for it. <laughs> um, and Darabont wrote the screenplay in about eight weeks. It's one he always wanted to make. He was showing it around town. Rob Reiner saw it, offered him $3 million <laughs> to let him di- let Rob Reiner direct it. So Frank, you wrote it. You'll get credit. But I want to direct it. And I guess Darabont had a long night of the soul for a week or so because he's a struggling. He's like, it would have made my, you know, I would have been set for money. But he really wanted to make the movie, turned it down, bet on himself, wrote, I mean, Robbins, Freeman, Reiner, a lot of people that were involved in the making the movie said it's the best screenplay they ever mm-hmm. read. And the movie kind of bombed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's like one of the things I came across there was that one of the reasons that Darabont declined Rob Reiner's offer is that Rob Reiner wanted to make it with Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford. The casting the, what ifs are mind boggling. Yeah. He wanted to make it with Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford as Red and uh, and Andy Dufresne. And no. Darabont was like, I, I just don't see that vision. He offered it to Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks declined to do Forrest Gump, which came out the same year. And Tom Hanks won the Oscar um, mm. in that year. Kevin Costner also declined the role. And apparently Charlie Sheen really wanted yes. to be in this movie. Thank God. <laughs> apparently did a 30-minute audition <laughs> tape, which I wish I could watch. Right, like if the internet could source that, that would be great. Like that Jeff Bridges, Nicolas Cage, and Johnny Depp were also in consideration mm. um, for Dufresne. And then the the people in consideration for Red are a little bit better. <laughs> like Gene Hackman, Robert Duvall. I think Robert you could, Redford, you can Robert totally Redford. see doing this. All the voiceover right. out of Redford totally makes yeah. sense. Yeah, Paul Newman, Clint Eastwood as Red is one I'm glad that we avoided. So thank goodness that Frank Darabont went his own way here. And I love the uh, bit too, that Morgan Freeman insists that he's the one who suggested Tim Robbins to play this role. And in in all of the research that I read, everyone else associated with the film is like, well, if that's what Morgan says, then okay. (laughs) Like no one else is insisting that you don't contradict the voice of God. You don't do that. They're not saying he's wrong, but they're not saying that's the way they remember it. Sure. If Morgan wants to tell that story, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Bless your heart. Morgan. I, I don't think there's any 
there's only one casting choice I don't love. I don't love the character that plays the actor that plays Tommy. He's not bad. I just don't know that he brings a whole oh, lot. Oh, Gil Bellows, yeah. Yeah, Gil Bellows. Apparently, Brad Pitt was offered that part, mm. um, but he was going off to do Fight Club, I guess. So, kind of, it, it was a little too big of a star even in '95. Yeah, I think for for that particular part, there's not much interesting to me in the casting. With I think everything is a landmine. I think Hanks could have been Dufresne. I think Robbins ultimately is better for Mm -hmm. reasons we can get into, but Hanks could have played Dufresne. Like you watch Hanks in Philadelphia, it would be a similar kind of vibe. You know, that kind of aloof intellectual, but also vulnerable and interesting and trustworthy. Like that, that variety of Hanks in that time period of Hanks' life could have been done. But Tim Robbins is great. Do you want to, let's talk about Tim Robbins because I think his performance gets overshadowed by how great and incomparable and career making and really Morgan Freeman voiceover narration is narration is like a cultural product of the 20th century like it's one of the great cultural products of the 20th century I totally agree I think that Tim Robbins gets overshadowed here um he's he just looks haunted at some points you know in like a deep existential way of there is something going like in a still waters run deep kind Mm -hmm. of thing like you want to know what Andy Dufresne is about. And we get little bits of it. We get that you need hope and he's certainly persistent, but like there's just something, there's this like soulful gravitas that Tim Robbins portrays in a way that I do think Hanks could have done it. It would have been a different feeling, but like you're right, Philadelphia era, Tom Hanks could have taken a crack at that. Mm. It's so hard to imagine it being so anybody hard. but Tim Robbins. And the way that he, like, it's notable that um, Dufresne's character is small in the book. And wow. Tim Robbins is, you know, like six foot four, tall guy. That's a deeper, like, hole you've got to dig to get out. Mm. Um, but it, he's just so, he's embodied in an interesting way. Like, this thing that he's doing is so physical um, to literally dig his way out of prison and he is very he comes he does come across as very self-possessed but there's this nuance to it where the character's not cocky um he's he's always like pushing the line a little bit like he comes out of line you know on the rooftop to interrupt the guards and you're supposed to never acknowledge that you're even listening to the guards conversations he's willing to like take a little risk and robin's just feels he feels like the right amount of edge to me where like I am on the record from our Dan Brown episode of talking about how Tom <laughs> Hanks has like zero to negative edge uh, and I think Dufresne needed a little bit of that um, and Tim Robbins really brings it yeah I'm not sure maybe edge is the right word to me he's a he's an interesting looking person mm. Tim Robbins like he's unusual looking in his height for Hollywood he doesn't have a classic Hollywood leading man's like sharp features he's kind of roundish features kind of an impish look at six five which is an unusual combination a knowing smile Mm -hmm, that is one of the great sort of um, acting instruments we had in the mid 90s was the 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 tim robbins smirk which he deploys in almost everything i've i've seen him in um maybe most famously and originally in bull durham Mm. but he looks like he's he's got a wink in his eye and he's vulnerable, and he's tall and lanky and a physical presence, but not an intimidating, like, he's not a muscly big guy. He's a big guy. He walks around the village all the time, and Michelle and I used to see him walking around. He looks like a regular person. He's a little hippie, mm-hmm. which I think works here. He's a little bit, he's got the kind of the floppy hair, and there's a little bit of looseness to him, 
which in the world of Shawshank, which is so regimented, like the thing you have to learn about prison is the routine, as, as Red does, the, the looseness and angular, the, the floppiness of his hair and his, his body and his hands and his feet, just the whole thing, he seems a little cartoonish, which I think gives him a nice sense of being out of place mm. when you're watching him on screen. Yeah, that looseness reads to me also as just like a real comfort with himself. Yeah, right. And like this is a like this is a man who understands what he's about. And mm. that that's a contrast to Red as well. That like Red has spent his entire adult life in prison. He's never had the opportunity to discover what he's about outside of the context of institutionalized rules and practices and like and any of it and that he doesn't get to be loose in that way that that Andy does but I think Robbins you're right is he's such a great he embodies that so well that it's like this really comfortable like in his own skin kind of yeah like like here I am uh, just not totally outside the lines but not all the way in them either in one of our um we'll get to this movie at some point when we both have had like seven Prozacs and do Dead Poets Society. <laughs> but it makes me wonder about Robbins as Keating because he feels like he has like oh, a college, an English uh-huh. professor's vibe kind of and in the movie. And wonder, I wonder, I mean, Dead Poets Society is earlier and yet Robbins would have been younger and I'm not sure that it really works. But it feels like there's a kind of energy, it would have been a different energy, but I think he could have pulled off the inspiring, embodied Inspir- uh, you know, self-assured, but also vulnerable thing that yeah. Robin Williams does there's in the Poets' Society. Like, there's just a real charisma. Yeah, that's and, right. And charm in a meaningful and authentic way, not in a like, you know, wink, wink, just give me what I want kind of mm-hmm. way. And I think we really, we get more of that in the movie. This is one of those places that I think the movie serves us better because you get to see him like really building out the library and spending time with all of the guys getting books to them and the letter writing campaign to get library funding gets bigger, I think, in the movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he has that moment with Tommy helping him study for his GED and then mailing off the test, even though Tommy thinks that he's failed and Tommy finds out when the results come that um, that he's sent it off and he's done okay and all of these things have happened or no it's not tommy is it it's somebody else what um the one who that that dufresne helps him get his ged tommy it's tommy it is tommy okay yeah, right. it's tommy. It's like, was it's I? Tommy. okay right yeah, yeah um yeah and there's just like the sensitivity that um he came into the prison with something that like red and a lot of the guys who've been in there for a long time haven't had a chance to develop and he keeps it yeah um other things the movie do better. I guess one of the the character, if you had just read the novella and you're coming to the movie and you're like stock up, stock down in terms of character, mm. you should buy Brook stock coming out yeah. of the novella because you don't know what Darabont's going to do with Brooks. A lot of that's in the movie is not in the novella. Mm-hmm. Um, and James Whitmore, who is a, at the time a very well-known character actor, what warmth and gentleness in like nine sentences mm-hmm. you get from James Whitmore and a sad story. I think the the stuff about institutionalization comes along a lot harder in the movie. Yeah. And I think it does itself a service through Brooks, through red, through this is, this is how it goes. If it work, even if it works out for you where you get mm-hmm. out after 30 or 40 or 50 years of a life sentence. Yeah, I think so too. Um, 
I loved the line in the movie, if I'm a convicted murderer, murderer who provides sound financial planning. <laughs> like, yes, it, so good. It brings across like the humor there. There's so much good, like straight from Stephen King narration. Um, there's a lot more foreshadowing in the movie for what's mm. going to happen. Like we see the cell getting searched. We see Andy being nervous while people are looking through his cell. Um, I liked that. I like the structure of the book a lot better that we're hearing it all like we're hearing it all after the fact but like red plays it up for us in a way that we don't know what andy's going to do until it's done and i can imagine like the first time that you read this book you're surprised about um what has happened and how dufresne has pulled it off and it's there's so much more foreshadowing in the movie that i think it's much less of a surprise um what the movie does less well. I just think the movie is lacking some of the nuance that I wanted or it becomes more overt in a way that I don't think serves it as well. Like there's the whole thing about chess in the movie of like Dufresne is talking about chess and the symbols of chess and then he's carving a bunch of chess characters, um, or, you know, chess pieces. Um, like that's chess is such a commonly used yes, stand-in yeah. or symbol in films for like I'm a character who is strategizing and playing the long game and I just didn't need a lantern hung on it in yeah. that way I thought that was just a little bit too much um but it's beautiful seeing these characters on screen the one scene I've always loved and I wonder now if Again, is the movie meaningfully better without it? I don't know. I think it changes one that's not in the book. Um, it's also one of the few ad libs where the scene is in the screenplay, apparently, where mm-hmm. Robbins or um, Andy plays yes. the, the aria yeah. from La Laza de Figaro. Mm-hmm. That's in my notes, too. Um, and he turns up the music when the warden is there and he gets two months in the hole. At this point, we know Andy is different. I'm not sure what we know about Andy at that point that we don't know some other time. And knowing where he is on his scheme, does he really hazard building mm-hmm. the t- digging out the tunnel for 90 seconds of that aria? It just doesn't feel like the the coming out of the guy who plays chess. That feels yeah. like a wild move. Yeah. There all of a sudden. And then the stuff about music gets him down inside you the place they can't take it. Mm-hmm. I feel like I don't need that. I don't need it to be told to me at that particular moment that Something else is going on here beyond just playing out the string in a movie. It just felt like too much. I get yeah. it. I get it already. I yeah, get. yeah. It's one of those scenes where like it's a beautiful moment in the movie and it's also totally unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> and and right, like he's taking a risk because he's getting sent to the hole and who knows what's going to happen in his cell right. um, or where, where he'll get reassigned when he... Will get transferred to a different prison? Comes I mean, back, I right. Know. Like yeah. I loved seeing, and this is probably just like the book person-ness coming out, but I loved seeing more of the library and seeing Andy as the librarian on screen and like imbuing that value of books to people and supporting the other prisoners and finding books to read and helping them get their educations. And Mm -hmm. like, there's this thread running through as we were talking about at the top of like, of what rehabilitation really means. And I, most of it in this story is about these characters learning how to be 
human to each other and to connect on the human level. But some of it, too, is about education and um, discovering the world. And like the guards and the warden are not facilitating that. The only way that it happens inside Mm -hmm. the walls of Shawshank is the prisoners doing it for each other. And in this specific case, it's Andy, you know, fighting to get more books for the prison library and to make the library a thing and like trading on the social capital that he has with the warden to make that happen. So I loved that. But yeah, there's uh, it's just there's like extra sentimentality in the movie that um, the I think the book nails the tone perfectly. Like it just nails the emotional tone of the story in a way that like when I came to the movie after the book, I was like, oh, this is too much. Yeah, I, I think for my taste, I want a little bit more um, emotion. I want a little more connection between Andy and Red rather than just Red sort of narrating, telling Mm -hmm. the story of Andy from a distance. I like the closeness the movie gets you between them. But if he came back one step, I think I'd be okay with that um, particular two. All right, favorite scenes, favorite quotes. Okay, well, obviously, get busy living, get busy dying. I mean, is that it? That's the (laughs) signal. Is that the signal? No, I mean, mean, in in the cultural consciousness, that's the quote, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and I love in the movie, there's I had to come to prison to be a crook. Yes, Um, that gets a big laugh from Red in the moment, which is funny. Yeah, which is a good one. Um, There are some like sight gags in the movie that work that I thought worked really well when the warden is searching Andy's cell at the end and he puts his fist through the poster. And that's like how he discovers that it's hollow in the wall behind that. I lived, I love seeing that, but it's hard to pick out anything that's really any better than get busy living or get busy dying. Well, I think that's a weird thing in this movie for as popular as it's become over time. Well, especially, Oh, this is interesting too. The same year this came out, was the year of Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction, yeah. which are two radically different ends of the sort of seriousness and mm-hmm. stylistics. And uh, both and incredibly quotable. Very quotable and a very memorable scenes where Shawshank, which I think over time, Pulp Fiction is the better movie. We can fight about that some other day. But the more <laughs> enduring popular movie is Shawshank doesn't have as many scenes that you're going to quote back and forth to each other as many quotable lines it's really the emotional yeah. beats and story and feeling you get out of Shawshank. Not that it's, oh, I want to watch that scene or say that line or do something else, which is very unusual. I yeah, think. I I think that's right. That like Pulp Fiction is one of those movies that if it's on cable, I mean, I think it's like the Big Lebowski in this way that like if it's on cable, you can watch any one scene yes. by itself. And that's a satisfying like that's a satisfying snack. You didn't get the whole meal, but the snack was satisfying. Mm-hmm. And Pulp, or not, not Pulp Fiction, Shawshank, you really need to see it through to the end for yeah. it to like the whole two hours and 22 minutes to is about getting to like that the moment when they discover that Dufresne is gone and then the moment when Andy and Red meet up on the beach. Like it's about that ultimate emotional payoff in a way that Gump and Pulp Fiction were about are really movies that are about so much more episodic right yeah so much more episodic i mean i guess the two are once they do the roll call in the morning and dufresne is gone that's a roller Mm -hmm. coaster to the end i mean you're on that train you're just barreling straight through the other scene um i used to do this for my friends i'd make compilations of scene from movies around a different theme like be a car chase or a fight scene or something else like that the other one i would pull out maybe in some compilation is the rooftop scene Mm. because it's a nice moment it's extremely powerful. It's compact, and it gives. It has an arc to it because you you end up at a different place at the end of the scene than you end up at the beginning. When like, yeah. Andy's just you know along for the ride because he's made friends with friends. He takes a risk. He's very much in peril, 
and then he wins and there's the sunshine and you know I think a man feels more like a man if he's a, couple, a bottle of suds at the end of the day it's really beautiful and the thing that turns him and it's that one I think is pretty self-contained the rest is like this slow whatever the opposite of erosion is the thawing mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. Red and Andy and it's episodic it's like a cruise but other than that, I'm not finding myself like, boy, I could watch that scene right now. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons it was so mm-hmm. popular on cable. Like, there's a great story that one of the reasons it became so popular, I'm sure you and I were affected mm-hmm. by this, Ted Turner needed um, content to fill out TNT in the <laughs> mid-'90s. And so he bought Castle Rock Entertainment's back catalog so he could he could um, air it for cheap, mm-hmm. right? Because he had the rights. And so it was on all the time. In the midnight, even now it's probably on TNT all the time because the the cable company owns the rights. Kind of like what happened with some Wonderful Life. The one reason it was Wonderful Life was on all the time is because I think it was NBC could get it for free, um, yeah. and they could just air it over and over again. It's weird how a contractual thing made this a thing. Like I know we don't want to talk about that, but because it was on all the time, you and I and probably a million kids like us who didn't have cable or cars in 1998 were watching Shawshank and were just yeah. picking it up from wherever and would just let it run for however and you would change the channel and go do and you would dip in and out of it. It became like cultural background noise in the in the mm-hmm. late 90s kind of strangely. Yeah, and I think I mean you have to be very familiar with a thing in order to become like very attached to it. And that just repetition of seeing this and picking it up at different moments and knowing where it's driving, knowing what the ending is going to be like, but you still want to get to the ending. You still want the payoff. I think undeniably is a large part of how you end up with like Shawshank Redemption at the top of like greatest movies ever made lists. And it's like the highest rated or at one point it was the highest rated by fans movie on IMDb. And there are a lot of pieces speculating about how and why that happened. But we talk about that for a minute. Yeah. The availability of it. Availability. But like other movies were available too. like Robin Hood Prince of Thieves was on TNT a billion times. Uh, (laughs) What what is it about this movie that people respond to? Because Morgan Freeman says people come up to him says you were, you know, in my favorite movie ever made and people Mm. it was number four on the bbc's list of best movies of all time i don't think they had tnt over in jolly old england so like that's a contributing factor but i don't think it's it's a net i don't i think it's maybe necessary but not sufficient for explaining the shawshank phenomenon i think it's the hopefulness and that like sentimentality doesn't make necessarily for great movies but it makes for enjoyable mm-hmm. ones like I was thinking about the game that you and Michelle play about like what's your favorite and what's the best yes. and how favorite and best are often not the same thing when you're talking especially about like culture mm-hmm. and media and I think Shawshank falls into that like it's a great movie but I think it falls for me into one of those the place of it's a favorite because of how it makes me feel mm-hmm. um, but it's maybe not like technically the best like I will I'm in the same camp with you Pulp Fiction is the better movie um, but and I love Pulp Fiction, and I can quote most of it back to you. But like, I feel more about the Shawshank Redemption, and I think that people come from that place when you're when they get asked about favorite movies or what you're attached to. Is that like what what's their more emotional connection to? And like, yeah. a lot of my the stuff I read about this turned up, you know, people talking about it as a religious allegory and people talking about this movie, like inspiring them to change something in their own lives Mm -hmm. in some way. Like people stop Morgan Freeman on the street and tell him Shawshank Redemption literally changed my life. And like, that's how do you compete with that? And also like Pulp Fiction wasn't doing that. Yeah. I mean, I love this movie and I don't want to crap all over it. And yet, I mean, I got like, what's the movie about? Like, I think the sentimentality 
criticisms are maybe overblown, but that's what people are using to describe something else. And I think the other thing is what the movie about is kind of obvious, weirdly. I mean, it's not easy, but it's obvious. Like, hope is good. Like, that's not controversial, but it's sort of hard to... to, the, The Shawshank Redemption lays out the utility of hope in a way that's something other than a wall platitude, I guess, is what it's it's yeah. about. I think the book just, I think the book wins on this respect. And ultimately, this is why I liked the book better. Like one of our questions here is you can save the book or yeah. the movie. Which one do you take? And I'm taking the book because... Wow. <laughs> wow. I still love the movie. Please wow. don't have me. Wow. I need <laughs> to drink something. <laughs> Woo. Get a bottle of water. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, Most don't send me the thing you've ever said. <laughs> Holy Moses. I'm taking the book because of two primary things that we don't see Andy and Red meet on the beach at the end of the book, I think is very important because the book is about the function and utility of hope, regardless of the outcome. Outcome, right. That we need hope, that it's not about the outcome, but we need hope and that hope as a motivating factor, like at least moves us forward into some kind of action. And that like, that hope is a catalyst for change, whether like in a system or in your own character or both, or for helping other people change. And Andy being motivated by his own hope moves Red to have a kind of hope that he's never had before, and that changes who he is. And that, I love that. I It needed to be open-ended, and Stephen King left it open-ended. And, and notably, Darabont didn't want the ending it got. That yeah, was forced yes. on him by the producer. He wanted to end it much like the novella, I think, which is, Read on the bus with that last thing. I hope the ocean is mm-hmm. as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. Yeah. That, watch the bus go into a cornfield, fade to black. That's right. It. That ambiguity, I think, really matters. Mm. That um, that like if the bus had gotten if the bus had gotten in a crash five minutes after that and Red had died, he still would have been like he he still would have lived his life mm-hmm. in that place of hope. And I think that that's what's meaningful about the way Stephen King tells the story. And then on. Andy's side of it, that Andy in the book is also just motivated by the hope of getting out and the hope of getting to Zewatanejo. And he has, he's had this hope in mind since before he went into prison, because he took care of his finances, and he put them in place. And now he's just got to get back out and get to that money. And that the movie introduces this sort of revenge storyline of like, he's, he's being used by the guards and the warden. And so he's also going to use them that he had to come to prison to become a crook. Like, I didn't really want Andy Dufresne to become a crook. Mm. Um, And I didn't love that so i'm mm-hmm. that those are my that's that's my hot take <laughs> yeah, no, I, mean, I feel like i should hide behind something i i feel i have two minds about the ending because i think the there's my head is saying leave it with the bus but my heart is saying mm. the hug as you're pulling away it just it does get me every time i i don't I wonder if everything about the movie was the same except that and it had the same story and it played on cable. Does it matter that much? Because I'm feeling like it might... I, I'm not sure what I what I think about it. Oh, I, if I'm just the last sure. scene of the movie is just red on the it's bus? It's just red. Do people... 
Is it that important? Was the producer right, I guess oh. is what I'm saying, for people's affection for it? Because it didn't matter for the box office because it, it didn't bomb, but it barely, it lost money and apparently it was the re- most rented movie of 1995 <laughs> also. So it made, and you know, whatever. I'm sure it's made up in value for whoever made it. Darabont's gone on to make The Walking Dead and um, Morgan Freeman became Morgan Freeman. Weirdly though, Robbins, in, in hindsight, it's hard to remember now, he was a big star coming into this. A star... A, a great performance, but kind of the end of Tim, Tim Robbins as a leading man. Mm-hmm. Um, we get he directs Dead Man Walking, in which he, you know, has a huge hand that becomes a critical success. Weirdly, fallen out of the cultural discourse. What's the last Tim Robbins thing you remember? Ooh, that's a good question. I did not go far enough down the Tim Robbins IMDb hole to answer. No, that. but but I'm just I'm I'm glad because then what what do you got? Like what's next? Yeah, because like the big Tim Robbins roles, you you get. Bull Durham, and you get this, and what else do you get? Rocky Horror? Mm. So I think this is the peak of Robin's career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Morgan Freeman, his best known role, clearly, but he goes on to be in Seven and other big movies. Like, Morgan Freeman becomes Morgan Freeman with this movie. Darabont makes his career. No one else gets a big bump out of it. Um, No one else is like, oh, that's, I guess... There's some people that you see in other movies like, oh, wasn't that the guy, the, the guard mm-hmm. from Shawshank? Wasn't that the warden from Shawshank? It's their that guy roles for other movies they go yeah. on to do because it was seen so often. Um, fascinating cultural trajectory for the movie. It's really hard to, I can't think of anything like it. So you're saving the movie. I, I think I have to. Because I, 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 I don't get Robbins as Dufresne. I don't get Freeman as Red. Uh, and I don't know what the movie, the book gets me that the movie doesn't. It gives me more. It gives me more with Brooks. Mm. You know, I don't know. All I right. think you get Rita Hayworth flinging her hair in Gilda, which is just a <laughs> wonderful scene. Watching the prisoner watch that is always a delight. Um, I think I have to save the movie. I'm glad they both exist. It was interesting to read the book, but the book is not wildly. The only thing different enough in the book to be interesting to me is the end. That Tommy's story is a little bit different. Nah, doesn't matter. You get more about Red's crime. Nah. Doesn't matter. And that I know there's a different ending isn't what I need from the book. Not that there's a different ending, mm. I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. I found reading the novella to be like two of the most satisfying hours of my reading life in well, a that's long something. time. That's something. Mm-hmm. Is it satisfying having not seen the movie, though? That There's the unanswerable question, right? Because yeah, you can't who go knows? back before. Like, I definitely didn't. I couldn't read it without Morgan Freeman's voice in yeah. my head. Hard to yeah. know how much. You can't step back into the un-Shawshank right. River. Uh, things we googled. You got any? I've kind of sprinkled mine throughout. Yeah, I'm not sure if I had yeah. Else. I didn't, there was nothing else that I. I didn't have very many like what ifs um, or weird wonderings about about the book or the movie here. There wasn't a whole lot that ne- yeah. that I needed explained. Shot in Ohio, decommissioned prison. Um, they used exteriors for yeah. the for the prison. They used interiors on a soundstage. You can go. It's become a minor tourist attraction. Apparently, you can go get Shawshank mm-hmm. bunt cakes. Apparently, <laughs> oh, in the little Ohio town, there's a lot of Shawshank merch. <laughs> um, um, quibbles, happen, questions. Oh, anything and this else is just research? a weird thing. I happened to pause it. Um, I was watching it on Amazon, and I happened to pause the movie at like one of the moments where. Red is out at the um, at the wall looking for the stone near the very end, and it pops up like random trivia. And so I learned that the <laughs> <laughs> I learned in that moment that the set designers built that wall months before production began, so that the alfalfa and everything around it could like mm. grow up and sprout around it and look natural, um, and that you can 
can or at one point you could buy pieces of the wall like off of you know charity auctions wow the the oak tree apparently was there until 2015 it got struck by lightning and then slowly faded so you could go that'd be a really interesting list you and i've talked about the uh, the iowa cornfield in which field Mm. of dreams happens also Mm -hmm. a a future tier worthy book nerd movie club hour um but movie tourist destination things i think was i would never have thought before thinking about it, I guess this is how thinking works. Um, to go visit the rock wall and tree at the end of Shawshank, or to visit it's—I can't remember the Marion County Prison System or whatever it was—to mm-hmm. go see that. But I would like to see that. There's a really wonderful shot. Uh, Roger Deakins shot this, one of the great cinematographers of all time, and his skills aren't really on display because it is so tight and close on the characters, and there's not a great color palette. But you get one helicopter shot early that comes up and over and around Shawshank. Mm -hmm. And you see, and you really get the world building in there. Made me wonder, I think Shawshank works as a play as well. If you wanted to do it as a play. Never thought about this before until I saw that shot. How how contained the whole thing um, Mm -hmm. really is. Quibbles, questions. What bothers you still about the book or the movie? I don't have a lot of quibbles left. I oh think my they, god, I've got like seventeen. Do you? you? My most of my quibbles came out in the course of this discussion, but I'm happy uh, to let you be the one with more quibbles. I mean, it's kind of logistic stuff. Okay. Um, so, and again, I get it. Like the escape plot is kind of like the murder and crawdads. Like I don't think you actually need it for the emotional thing. I don't think you need crawdads at all. But for <laughs> For Shawshank, the escape plot is satisfying, but it's really Andy and, and Red's story, and you mm-hmm. get the you know the the how you do it at the end. But is he really in the same cell by himself for nineteen years? Is that mm. how prisons work? I don't know. Maybe if you are super successful at paying everyone off, I, I, I think, think that's, I think that's, I, that's what we're supposed to believe. We're supposed to believe, but I'm just like they never get moved. They never do any construction. There's never any maintenance at all. That, you know, no one notices there's a giant freaking draft coming in from cell block five. That's one I wonder about uh, in a very real way. Oh, and yeah, you do hear that in the book that like that Andy has a cellmate for what, like, yeah, for like eight months. And the only thing that he comments on is that there was like a bad draft in the cell. That was a weird note. I didn't. I'm not sure why that was in there. Um, Another quibble. Oh, again. So Andy's escaping. It's the night he chooses. And I think he chooses it because there's a thunderstorm. I'm not really clear mm-hmm. where he's timing his rock strikes into the sewage pipe with the thunder and lightning, yeah. which A, hard to do unless you know exactly <laughs> how far the lightning is. And I don't think you can crack a hole big enough for a man in a steel pipe with a piece of the concrete he just tunneled through with a rock hammer. I just don't think you can do that. that yeah. that's, I don't know enough about it, but I'm not so sure. About I it. think we see too many of the logistics of the escape in the movie, and it does yes. open up room for questions, where in the book you know that like it's a very tight squeeze, like only a small guy, as he is in the book, could have gotten mm-hmm. like through that hole, but that also he like lucked into the wall. Like it, it, There's details in the book that let us believe it, about like the cinder block was made out of certain material that makes it really soft. Um, he's able to crack through it. His cell happens to be... A against the wall that butts up next yes. to one of the um, the sewage pipes and how he gets into it. Like there's like none of that having to break into the pipe or strike it as the lightning strikes happens. Look, in the there's, book since, there's suspension of disbelief in all fiction. I'm totally willing to grant that. It's the point yeah. at which you choose to care. Yes. I guess on the other side of coincidence is the beginning. So Andy Dufresne's wife and her lover get murdered 
on the same night that he's out there with a gun drinking. Yeah. Tough. <laughs> that reminds me of two things that, like, one thing that I missed from the movie that uh, that I loved in the book is Red talking about how Andy would have four drinks a year. Yes. <laughs> and, like, his like, very careful description of it. So we know that Andy Dufresne has, like, really taken a look at his drinking and where it landed him, even though he didn't commit the murders. And oh, now it just... The train just left the station. I just completely lost my train of thought of, oh, the um, the bit at the end of like the magic of uh, Red reflecting on watching yeah. Andy walk around the prison yard and have dust come out of the mm-hmm. cuffs of his pants. Just all is like, it's just all a little bit more subtle. In yeah, a little, little bit more subtle. Um, let me see what else I have for quibbles and questions. Oh, again, doesn't matter except that I noticed it. it is that volcanic rock in that wall in the movie different enough looking no that you would pick it out (laughs) i i had a quibble with that in the moment too (laughs) okay because you know andy's saying you know you're gonna find a rock that has no earthly business being in a rock wall in maine i was like oh it's volcanic glass right great it's gonna be shiny or whatever he picks it up it looks virtually indistinguishable from every other dusty ass rock sitting there and he has to find it under some other (laughs) dusty ass rocks i was like that seems so weird i guess in 19 years they want to show it's been there for a while but it rains there can you not show that it's like meaningfully different i was like there's no way that red wandering around in hayfields in maine on some hot ass summer day (laughs) is gonna find that rock there's no way no and again it does right these are why they're quibbles they don't matter (laughs) they don't matter they don't it's still a great movie. I think it is. It, it's it's a great movie. Those are my quibbles and questions. I, the, here's my last one, and I'm part of the, I'm part of this quibble because it's not about the movie. It's about I don't know what the movie's about or what it's not about. Stephen King said he wrote it based on you know the movie the the movies and books and TV shows he watched as a kid about prisons, and we said in our annotated episode about the prison system that if we have a cultural idea of what a prison is like if you're of our age it is Shawshank Mm -hmm. right it's like this is a this is a crucible of cultural representations of prisons Mm -hmm. that goes completely uninterrogated like there's the 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 movie shows that prisons are bad but it's taken as like the weather like you go to you go to prison it's bad you're going to get raped Mm -hmm. you're going to get beat the warden is going to be a cheat it doesn't work and maybe just that all that is like do you feel like there's a political message enough of one for your taste? Or is it just that prisons are bad and you don't want to be in prison? Do you deserve to be treated like, like the prisoner's rights angle of this left me like a little squicky in the end. I think King is really good about a lot of it. Like the warden is bad and the guards are bad and there's a power dynamic and the, the prisoners aren't, they don't deserve what they get there except the warden in the book especially is replaced by other bad wardens. It's just sort of a cycle of abuse and of which the answer is that they're going to escape to Mexico. Yeah. There's just a baseline acceptance of a certain amount of injustice. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think if I were seeing this movie for the first time in 2019 as my like, what, however fully formed this self is, um, I would have objected to, I would have objected to that. It's hard to separate having known the story for so long but it does like it it does depict bad things that happen in prison and then it just presents them as this is the way that it is and it kind of implies this is the way that it's always been and also this is the way that it will always be yeah um and that 
is not satisfying um, in the way that like orange is the new black has gone beyond mm. that. There are like we do have new cultural markers that mm. like who knows if that will stand the test of time or if some of the other films and TV shows set in prisons will surpass like the place that Shawshank has in our generation's cultural imagination. But mm. um, it, it he Stephen King does come short there. Like that's one place where I think where less subtlety would have been good. Yeah. Or I mean, I'm not even sure if it's subtlety like, I know now because I've recommended on annotated Chris Wilson's The Master Plan about his time in a maximum security prison serving um, a, a life sentence that he eventually doesn't have to serve through means that aren't, you know, climbing through rivers of crap and polishing rocks. That is, you know, overtly talks about how the system is messed up. And this says the system is messed up, but ends kind of there. It's like It's like saying cancer is bad. Right. Like cancer is bad and it's just cancer. Like why are you going to worry about cancer. I did notice, though, the warden says when Andy comes to him to write letters about money for the library, the warden does say the only thing people have any tolerance for with prisons is three things, more prisons, more walls, more guards. Mm -hmm. So there is an indictment in that of the public understanding and, and appetite for thinking about prisoners as other anything other than people in a box being subjected to that. So I, I don't think it's completely like this is just the way it is, but it did strike me as like, especially considering how important it is to my own sort of cultural imagination about prisons, mm -hmm. that it treats it like an inevitability rather than something that is made by man, propped up by man, and theoretically could be dismantled and utterly right. deployed by man. Right. So. But it's not about that. It just it struck me this time as a place it didn't want to go. And probably one of the reasons it's so popular is it's good for all time zones. Like there's not a political message here. Hope is not a political message, I don't think. Like, if you're a Republican and you're watching this movie, what do you object to? I, I don't think much, you know, if you're if you're more conservative than we are. Because it's not about politics. It's about, if in my dark night of my soul, is it more than hope is good? Sometimes I'm saying yes, and sometimes I say, I guess it's my ultimate quibble. It's like, yes, hope, is, despair is bad. Who has ever said otherwise, I guess, is the question. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question, like if Stephen King were to write the book today, if all of those things, or if the movie were to get made today, if all of the wokeness of 2019 gets imbued into the story, and it's also meaningful, like if it's set in a prison in 2019 versus if it's set in the 40s right. and 50s, like some of what we're getting is that that was the cultural moment of the time that the characters lived in. And I don't think there was a lot of discussion about prisoners' rights and um, what rehabilitation actually meant happening. So it's like, that's a tough, it's a tough read. And there are progressive, like we know Stephen King to be a pretty progressive guy in real yeah. life. And there's, um, a, there's progressive stuff in this text, even from the 80s, like I was really surprised about the um, level of sensitivity around the prison rape stuff. So it doesn't ring all the bells that like you would want a 2019, like hard hitting analysis of prison life to hit. Mm. Um, but I don't think it does a terrible job. And it's just a, an open question, I guess, of like, how else you could have told the story, how else King could have told it. And one of those tricky moments, of like we just know some things now and talk about some things differently um, than we talked about them 35 years ago. Well, and I guess my, my last note I have on this, the movie that I wanted to talk about for a minute, it's kind of related to this, is that the movie and the book read to me as more fable-like mm -hmm. than anything. And to write a fable like this, because you know, this came out in 1982, King was probably writing it in the fall of 1981, because that's how Stephen King rolls. Right. Because he's just always writing and publishing, which is incredible. 
but he was setting it 40 years or 35 years. The beginning of Shawshank started 35 years. He chose to set it in the past, a meaningful past, one that he has read. And it's a fable-like setting for him. It's a morality play of a kind. And probably it's best for the long-term endurance of a work like this to not be like caught up in the particular political discourse of a moment. Yeah. Um, so I think that does its service. It, it's a trade-off, I guess, is what I'm trying. It, it, it could have been more about prisons are bad and we should get out there and vote and dismantle the mass incarceration system. I would not be mad at that particular take of a Shawshank remake or something like that. But the virtue of not doing that, I think, is longevity. When I think it, also... it becomes more enduring to be outside of a particular moment and embedded in a sort of near mythic recent past. I agree. And I also think that if the if the story and if Red's narration in particular had become about a real look at the prison system, then you you lose or lose a large portion of what's what else is going on with the characters and their motivation to get mm-hmm. out and like that it that their hope is this fantastical thing right. of digging a hole like spending 20 years with a rock hammer chipping through the prison wall going through a river of poop and then magically somehow getting to a beach in Mexico where the Pacific Ocean has no memory like this is the thing they have to hope for that's how bad life is that like this is the thing that they have to hope for um comes through really, I think, really strongly. And if the story had been turned into uh, something that's analytical or supposed to be politically motivating, it's hard to marry that with the same kind of motion that Andy Dufresne needs to take to make this story work in the way that this story works. No, I I agree. I guess the, the other subtext that makes me a little uncomfortable is like, well, if you just have enough willpower, you can beat the system. Yeah, like that's we we know that not to be true about systems. Like, okay, there's examples, and that Andy is Andy an exemplar, or is he a exception? I think that question is very interesting. Yeah. Oh, I felt like it's pretty clear that he's an exception. Like because Red describes him as like a myth man from the very beginning. Um, Right. Yeah, and then a and bunch then of- red is the everyman. I guess that makes sense because then red is the everyman, and the thing that red does, we may not be as the viewer of the movie, we may not be able to do the things that Andy does, but we could maybe do the thing that red does. Right? right. That's that. He's kind of. We're not supposed to be Superman, or we're not supposed to be Superman. We're supposed to be like Lois Lane. Yeah. Or, or Jimmy, the photographer, right? And that comes through, I think, on the page much more than in the book. That that's, like, I think that's a great point, yeah. Yeah, that Red thinks about, like, when Andy succeeds in getting out, Red thinks about, like, all the nights that Andy must have, like, had his heart beating out of his chest, knowing that, like, you know, a guard walking by at the wrong moment or a random search of his cell at the wrong time could have just ruined everything. Um, that, yeah. that like a bunch of things had all these dominoes had to fall in exactly the right order and nothing could go wrong in order for Andy to get out. And he like a lot of it is his persistence, but a lot of it also is that he's just lucky. And he has this like mythical magic to him that we hear about from page one. Yeah, and I guess that we're saying we're kind of talking around the same thing. And the ending, the the ending evaporates any motivation you have to go look at the prison system again because you're thinking about Andy and Red hugging. They don't go. They're not like, hey, okay, now we're in Mexico. We're going to go reform the prison system. <laughs> right. We're going to start a letter writing campaign to uh, end mass incarceration in, in Maine in the 1960s. Yeah. But this this is why I like doing these because I would never have think I would never think about this 
without needing to talk about it for a few minutes. So yeah, I appreciate totally. people listening and, and you taking the time to, to think along with me. What are we going to do next? We don't have the last for Hunt. I knew this was coming. When we did Da Vinci Code, I'd already signed Amanda up for Hunt for Red October. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about what's next. Do we have a next? Do we know what's next for book club? Movie we hour? don't have a next. I guess we could pick one. <laughs> Maybe we'll. we'll two, uh... Let's do two minutes of contenders. And if people have feedback, don't just random thing. Don't don't email us with things we haven't talked about because we. Right. Okay. So, so we're scheduled. Our bonus episodes are scheduled like through November. Right. Um. So we would be recording probably around the holidays. Like I could drink some extra eggnog and do Dead Poet Society. <laughs> Is there a great Christmas holiday adaptation movie to do? Oh. A Christmas, there's not a, is there a great Christmas Carol adaptation? I tend to think there's not. No, I love Scrooge, but it's like a sideways adaptation. Yeah, um, I can't think of a, Die Hard is, or <laughs> depending on your vantage point, is or is it's not a Christmas movie. three hours of people arguing about whether yeah. or not it's a Christmas movie. It is based on a book though. Um, uh, so other things we've talked about are um, Field of Dreams, a river yeah. runs through it. Jurassic Park. Yeah, Jurassic Park. Um, and there's going to be... You've got Mail, even though it's not a... Da- it's a bookish movie. Don't at me. Dead Poets. <laughs> Wonder Boys is one I'd like to do at some point. Mm-hmm. What, any of those jump out at you? I like all of those movies. If we do Wonder Boys, we're going to have to talk about professors having affairs with their students. <sighs> I don't like that. I know you don't. Is there an affair between a student and a professor in that? Or almost, just almost. Is that enough? Oh, I don't remember the particulars. It's enough think, to feel squicky about. Oh, I'm not saying I don't feel squicky, but I don't know that actually, <laughs> you know, I don't think there's any extra credit happening. I would love to hear from our listeners. With some. Yeah, okay, that's enough for now. We won't yeah. decide until we've said we've decided, but you're open podcast at bookriot.com. Would you save the book? Let us know what you thought about this. How hot was Rebecca's take about choosing the novella? Like, was it a habanero or was it like drinking Strontium 238? Look, I love this movie. I, it sounds to me like you hate it. That's what I heard. You hate this movie. Freeman's a hack. That's what I heard. Lacking nuance, Jeff. Yeah, Neal. lacking nuance. Rebecca, I'll talk to you next Have time. Have a good one. Hey.